0: The account of the birth of Jesus Christ as recorded for us by the evangelist Luke, and as we've just heard read, leaves us with two impressions of this child born and laid in the manger of this Jesus, both of his great glory and of his real humility. The great glory of the Son of God, of the Messiah, of the king and the great humility of the king laid in a manger. Both great glory and great humility. First, the glory of Jesus, which is, which is maybe most obvious in those fields outside of Bethlehem. As the shepherds were watching their flocks by night, keeping an eye out on the woods line for coyotes and maybe tending their fire, looking up at the stars. And as they were, it was as if the sky opened, suddenly light. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for I bring to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. They hear from this angelic voice a royal decree. The King has come, the long-awaited Messiah, the Savior of the world. He is here. He is with you. He is in Bethlehem. And if that wasn't enough, a message of that magnitude, from a voice of that glory, then it was as if the whole heavens opened up, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is glory A a glorious announcement worthy of the highest king. Worthy, in fact, of the Son of God. Of God come to dwell with man. Glory of a royal decree. But this is an odd passage. It's a strange thing. It's a strange event. Because it's great glory contrasted with real humility. The, the glory of the, the proclamation of the coming of a king, right? Hear ye, hear ye, the king is here. Proclaimed not to the great ones of the world. Proclaimed not on the, greatest, the streets of the greatest cities of the world. Proclaimed not to kings and to rulers, but proclaimed to lowly shepherds. Tending their flocks outside a, a suburb of Jerusalem. the glory of the Son of God, the glory of the Messiah proclaimed to shepherds, and then, and then the Savior in his coming laid where? In a feeding trough. Born to humble parents, peasants, people of no real note, Mary and Joseph, who, as they traveled into Bethlehem that day, traveled under the cloud of a stigma, as they were engaged to be married and Mary was about to have a child. It's to these people, crowded in a, in a home, because that's, that's where the passage indicates they were, the, the word used for in, there was no place for them in the inn. The word there in the original language refers not to a comfort inn, as we might think of it, but as a spare room, there really weren't hotels in that day like we think of them. And so sc- scholars today indicate that the common picture we have of them being turned away at the Motel 8 and then, and then hanging out in a barn, that's not quite right. What seems to be indicated here is that the inn is, is the upper room, the spare room of an, of an ancient Near Eastern dwelling, which would have been a relatively simple affair, basically two rooms, if you were lucky. There's the main room on the, on the main floor, and this was the main living area, where you ate and where you cooked and where you slept. And part of that was divided off and animals would you bring your animals in there for the night. Um, and then if you, were, um, if you were lucky, you had an upper room. So a room over this, sometimes it's just the roof or sometimes it was covered in. And this is where you'd have guests stay if they came to stay with you, um, give them a little bit of privacy. And so it was indicated by the passages that the upper room was full, there was already guests staying at the house where Mary and Joseph were lodging. And so they stayed down in the, on the main floor and hung out. Presumably, we let, we let the animals stay outside that night. And Mary and Joseph bed down in the hay with the king, with the Son of God. This is where the Son of God lodges, where the high king of King lives the first night he comes to earth, crowded into a lowly in your Eastern dwelling. Why this humility? This is strange, isn't it? And it doesn't end with the humility of the manger. Christ, the Son of God, came into the world, was born as a human being, took on the humility of being born in human flesh. The Apostle Paul describes it this way in Philippians 2. He says, though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. This is the humility of the incarnation. But he doesn't stop there. The child laid in the manger would one day be hung on a cross. Being found in human form, the Apostle Paul continues, he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The King of Kings, when he came into the world, was laid in a manger and then hung on a cross. The Son of God, when he came to dwell among us, suffered only indignity and rejection. Why? Why? Why would the King of Kings and Lord of Lords allow himself to be greeted in in such a way? Why would God, when he came to dwell with us, allow himself to live in such humility and to die in such humiliation? And the answer, of course, is love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The answer is that Jesus came as a Savior, even as the Angels announced, Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. God came to dwell among us in humility because, because our world is deeply broken, because we have turned aside from God, and because this curse of sin and death falls heavy upon this world. And though we were the ones who had turned aside, though we were the ones who had been unfaithful, not God, God did not allow us to go on in our mess, but came after us in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus willingly took on human form, and then beyond that, willingly, in human flesh, Subjected himself to the cruel torture and death of the cross. And he did this, we believe, in order to save us. He did this because the penalty, the wage of sin is death. And Christ came to humble himself, to bear that penalty on his body. He was crushed for our iniquity. By his wounds we are healed. He takes our place. And the wonder of this is that we can then be freed from the burden of sin and death. And the joyful, wonderful news, of course, is that Christ's death was not the end. Humiliation was not the end of the story. On the third day, Christ rose again in glory, appeared to many, and then ascended to the Father where he is seated in heaven at the right hand of God and where the scriptures tell us he has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. He reigns there as king and he will come again one day to establish his eternal kingdom on this earth. And if we were to catch a glimpse of Jesus where he is today, we would fall on our knees like the shepherds did in the fields that night. great glory, great humility. What I want us to understand in the glory of Christ is that Christ is more glorious than we think. We have a, uh, we have a whole stack of Christmas books over at the house, a big basket of them, board, kids' board books that we read with Nora. Nora and they've come from all over the place. And some of them are really good, and some of them are less good. And, and one book, it's great, it's, it's all about the animals, it talks about the, the animals in the stable, and um, it talks about Jesus, and the problem with the book is that it doesn't actually get to the point. It doesn't actually, doesn't actually tell you why Christmas is a big deal. It never identifies Jesus as anything other than a sweet baby. And when you get to the end of the book, with the shepherds and, and Mary and Joseph there around the, the cradle, the final line of the book is, and he was loved. And he was loved, and certainly he was loved by his parents. But every child born to decent folk is loved by their parents. The wonder, the surprise, the glory of Christmas is not that Jesus was loved but that he was worshiped. The glory of this child in the manger is is not that he was a sweet baby worthy of love but that he was the son of God in the flesh worthy of praise. Glory and humility Humility. The scandal of the glory of God can sometimes feel like it's pushing us away. Imagine us in the, in the fields, right? It's like, ah, I don't want to see this, right? They're terrified. Or if we imagine Christ where he is even now, seated on the throne, or imagine him returning again in glory, it can perhaps fill us with terror. But it, it ought not to, if we have come to rightly see the heart of God, Because in the person of Christ, his glory and his humility are not opposed. They are perfectly reconciled. So that Christ is wonderful, awesome in his glory, and he is inviting in his humility. His willingness to take on the form of a servant and then to bear our cross should show us something about the heart of this glorious God that God is not against us, that he is for us in love, that he has come for us in order to save us. God's desire for us is not that we be pushed away, but that we be drawn near and come to experience the love of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And my prayer for you this, this Christmas is that you would know both the glory and the humility of Jesus and most poignantly that you would come to know the love of God in the person of Jesus Christ. Have you come to know the love of God in the person of Jesus Christ? To know that you know that you know that you know that God loves you. Do you really know that? Maybe you can say the words, God is love. Do you know that God loves you? I think it's just wonderful that God invites these shepherds to greet the king. He doesn't invite the governor, he doesn't invite He invites the shepherds. It's a sign, I think, that God and Jesus is inviting. Ordinary people, people with problems, come, come. This angel, this whole angel army, this whole angel choir is sent out to invite a handful of shepherds. And they go. Verse 15, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered what the shepherds told them. I love this scene. I love to imagine what it it must have been like. The shepherds sort of hiking down up into the city. It wasn't a a giant town. It wouldn't have taken them long. Just a cup stopping at a couple houses, asking around, is someone having a baby tonight? (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Up at George's house. And so they go and they find the door. They knock. Maybe Joseph answers. They say, excuse me, sir, sorry, we hate to interrupt. Uh, But this is sort of an extraordinary circumstance. Angels sent us. We're not, kind of, we're not that kind of people. It, it just actually happened. The angels came to us. God spoke to us and they said that the, the Savior, the Messiah, you know, the one the rabbis tell us about, the one who will redeem Israel, the one who will bring a reign of peace and righteousness to the whole world and bring all the nations to God, that one, apparently he's here and we didn't want to miss out on a chance to see him. Apparently we were going to find him in a feeding trough and perhaps they peeked behind Joseph's shoulder and see the child there we're not told what they did there other than relating to Mary and Joseph all that they had seen and heard I like to think they knelt and worshipped, maybe they sung a psalm I like to imagine that uh, these burly men coming out of the cold air of the hills, smelling of smoke and sheep poop might have, might have held the Savior that night. That's what you do when you visit a, a baby, right? Can I hold it? Um, God in the arms of a shepherd. We're told in verse 19 that Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Two reactions here. Mary treasures these things up. That seems to be her, her mode. <laughs> she's an internal processor, and she's just watching, and she's listening, and she's amazed, and she holds these things in her heart. I'd encourage us to follow Mary's example this Christmas. Let's hold these things in our as we've seen here in the manger, the glory of God clothed in the humility of man, the love of God in a manger. Is the love of God the treasure of our hearts? The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. I think they went home walking on clouds. (laughs) We've seen the Messiah. We've seen the Savior. Wait until we tell the rabbi about this. And they glorified and praised God. They're, They're literally walking down the street singing, probably not in tune, praises to God. Praise the Lord, what have we just seen? Praise God, our Savior has come. Trying to remember the tune to the song they heard the angels sing, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And so as we go from here, let's make it our determination to treasure these things up in our hearts And to make our celebration of Christmas an expression of glorifying and praising God for all he has done in Jesus Christ. He has done so much that is good for us. We really do have reason to praise. Even if perhaps for some reason this Christmas is darker than others for you. I'd want to encourage you. Even in the darkness there is a light. There is reason to praise God at Christmas.